We are in our second week in a sermon series called Red Letter Day, where we consider the words of Jesus from the cross. And we know if you have a Bible like mine, some of the words might be in red letters, right? Those are the words that are recorded that Jesus himself spoke. The reality is that all the word is God's word. It's equal. The red ones aren't more important, but we do pay attention But specifically in this series, we're considering the red letters that Jesus spoke from the cross. So at the very end of his life, after he's lived a perfect life and he's been kind and healing and and a blessing to everyone he knew, he loved everyone he knew, every single person, he finds himself nailed to a cross. And at this point in time, he starts to say some things. And like we said last week, what you say last could really matter right? Uh, You pay attention to the very last thing you said to someone. I've heard stories about people who said, I didn't know it was the last time I would see them, and I can't believe this is the last thing they said to me, right? We talked about that last week a little bit. Uh, After I I shared last week, we're kind of doing this coming into the Easter season, which is coming up, and it's a season that we don't often recognize a family Bible called Lent, and I said it was 40 days until Easter, and someone reminded me this week, and I thanked them for this, that it's actually 46 days until Easter because Sundays don't count. Do you know why? Because Sundays are always resurrection days. And so in the way they worked all the math out on this deal, you start and we end at Easter, and that's the 40 days of Lent minus the six Sundays. So it's 46 days for before Easter. Just a fun little fact about what Lent is and what we're doing in the series. So we're kind of just considering these things as we move into the Easter season. And as a matter of fact, we're going to kind of come out of the series into a new series called Easter People, where we consider three folks that might surprise you uh, and how they experienced Easter morning. So uh, look forward to that as well. This morning, we're in our second week uh, reflecting on things Jesus said. And I wondered as we get started, have you ever had a hard time forgiving somebody? <laughs> right? Like something happens, whether it's small or large, and you just have a hard time letting it go. Uh, you could almost say there's a sliding scale between how small the offense is, although to be fair and honest, I don't know if you're like me, we're all set like on go off instantly right now. It seems like everyone's stressed out about everything in the world. And so uh, sometimes it doesn't seem proportional to the offense. Uh, but it seems that there's a sliding scale between the slighter things you can go, okay, I'll let that go, and the really big things you say, I really have a hard time letting that go. We're going to consider this morning what it takes uh, to forgive someone in this, this uh, sermon we're calling uh, Father, Forgive Them. So uh, pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning, a chance to worship you together as your people, that we would draw near to you. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would give us your divine wisdom and that you would um, teach us in our hearts. Your word says you'll teach us in our hearts that we might know you fully and that no one need teach us about the truth of your gospel because you will do that work. So this morning, would you teach us? from your word. We pray your Holy Spirit would have um, his way in our hearts and our minds. And we pray, Father, for all the things that we bring in this morning, that we would set in this time and just listen to your two word and then pray about how to apply it to our lives. So help us to do that, Father. We, we depend on you for it. We ask you to do so in Jesus' name. Amen. So this might be a verse that comes to mind for you when you think of Jesus on the cross, or it might not be. Honestly, for me, it's one of those that I don't often think of, and so it was interesting to to dig into it this week. I'm going to invite you to turn to that very passage, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 26, and we're going to cover through 34. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to get it out, check it out. If it's on your phone, you got the deal, you can do that. We have uh, Wi-Fi here for other devices as well, so feel free to jump on our Wi-Fi to connect. And we're going to check it out, Uh, Luke 23, 26 to 34. This is what the word says. 
As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him to carry it behind Jesus. And I'll stop right here and say, you remember last week we talked about Simon from Cyrene who was asked to carry Jesus' cross. And I said to you that I don't know a lot about why Simon was chosen for that task. But as I was thinking about Simon and his view, it says that he carried Jesus' cross and followed after him. He went behind Jesus. And the things that came to mind was this idea of, can you imagine that there's things going on around you and you get caught up in the moment and you're recruited? You don't volunteer, but someone asks you to jump into the fray with it. And the next thing you know, just imagine this now, you're carrying a cross, an instrument of torture and death behind the one who's going to be killed. I just want you to think about the view of Simon as he follows Jesus on this fateful day. And so you have Simon carrying the cross of Christ and following behind Jesus as he goes. We'll pick it up in 27. A large number of him, uh, of, a large number of people followed Jesus, now including women who mourned and wailed for him. I, we're gonna come back to that later in the Easter People series. Who are these women that are following Jesus? Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breath, the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall upon us and to the hills, cover us. Because if men do these things, when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And again, there's some allusions to something we're talking about in a few weeks called I thirst and what Christ is doing on the cross with these last words. Well, here we go, 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. We talked about these guys, and we're going to cover these in the series that we're in right now, these two criminals who were crucified with Christ. But I want you to notice here that it makes no uncertain fact of what's happening. Jesus is being executed. Now, you think again back to Simon, who's carrying the cross of Christ and following Jesus, and you have to wonder if Simon is thinking, I hope this is not for me, <laughs> right? Like, there's this idea of Jesus is going ahead, and he's the one that's condemned, but you're carrying his cross, and you hope that this isn't for you. You're being followed probably by two other criminals who are carrying their own cross, and are surely going to be executed today, and you've gotten caught up in the middle of this parade with Jesus through the crowds. Well, it says that um, there are two more going to be crucified, and they're going to be executed with him. This was a state punishment laid upon Jesus and these criminals 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with those criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. I'll take one final stop here before we get into our main text today. And we talked about this already. But uh, this, they, they took him to the place called the skull. Now, what, here it is again, four little words. And there they crucified him. There they crucified him. I told you last week when it was in the Gospel of Matthew, it seemed to me so passive and simple the way they talk about the death of Jesus. If you think about the way we think of Christ in the church, we think it's the most powerful, monumental, amazing thing that ever happened, that Jesus would die for us, die for our sins. And here now, twice in these Gospels, it's just four simple words. There they crucified him. Where? At the place of the skull. Let out like a common criminal to be crucified on a tree to be nailed to a cross. These words, again, seem to miss the weight of the moment, miss 
what is really happening. So now we get to our main verse, 34. He's crucified, get the imagery. One on his right, the other on his left. He's hanging on the cross. He's been crucified. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. We talked about that last week, the soldiers. Kind of the inhumanity of that, of taking a dead man's clothes. No, of taking a dying man's clothes. He witnessed it. He saw it. And in the moment, he says these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This immediately raised some questions for me. When Jesus says these words, who is Jesus talking about? See, I've read this passage a bunch of times, and I've always thought, well, he means in a very generalized sense, forgive them, all of them, right? But there's some very specific people who are at hand in that moment. And I think it's going to be important as we look at this verse that we think about uh, what's happening in the passage and what's happening specifically to Jesus. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He could have meant the criminals crucified on his right and his left. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't know. They kind of know what they're doing, right? We'll cover that later in the series. He could mean the, the uh, soldiers who are now, who, who are now uh, gambling for his clothes under the cross. They don't know what they're doing. Or it could mean the same soldiers when they nailed him to the tree. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's kind of hard to believe, though, isn't it? That the soldiers wouldn't know what they were doing. I mean, we talked about it last week, this idea of they're just following orders, doing what I'm told. If it's not you, it's me. Somebody's got to die, and I'm not going to die today, so I'm going to do my job and nail you to this cross. As they, as they nail Jesus to the cross, you can't imagine they're hitting, I can't even imagine the brutality of it in that moment that they don't know what they're doing, that they don't see the inhumanity that they are participating in. I was going to say experience, but they were actively participating in the inhumanity Jesus says these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe it's not the criminals. Maybe it's not the soldiers. They maybe know what they're doing. Maybe it's the religious leaders. Remember the Pharisees, teachers of the law, who, who sold Jesus out to the state, gave him the name. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's nothing to do with us. He's causing trouble. He claims to be better than Caesar, more important than Caesar. The law says you have to crucify him. And Jesus says these words, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Did the legal, the, um, the legal teachers, the uh, religious people not know what they were doing when they were putting Jesus on that cross? Did they not know what they were doing when they decided to finally once and for all get rid of their own enemy, the one they thought was a blasphemer who didn't keep to the true faith because he was teaching this radical idea that I am the very son of God that I am the one that's promised. Jesus says those words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then lastly, maybe, and this is the way I've always read it, all of us. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like, if one of the things about recognizing what Jesus does on the cross is uh, we put him there. <laughs> Our sin put him there. 
He goes willingly for sure, but the, 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 the shortcomings of you and me, the ways that we sin on purpose and on accident, the things that we fail to do and the things that we do are always we miss the mark. And then therefore, the things that our failures put Jesus on the cross. Well, that's theologically, right? Across all time and space. But Jesus says those words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here's an interesting thought. If they didn't believe Jesus is who he said he was, they couldn't possibly have known what they're doing. I want to take us from that moment, that, that, that intimate view of following Jesus with the cross, that moment where the soldiers nail him to the cross, they gamble for his clothes, the criminals on his right and left, that very human particular time in history, and wants to pull back to this grand narrative that God is demonstrating in Jesus Christ. In that moment, they could not possibly have understood all the ramifications of what is happening, all the things. We talked last week about how Jesus said the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was totally abandoned on the cross. The reality is that in that moment, they could not possibly have known what exactly they were doing. I'm saying, and with all honesty, there's no way every person involved could possibly know what was happening in the cross of Jesus Christ. I would say that today, when we continue to sin, we can't possibly know all that was involved in the cross of Jesus Christ. The big picture. And yet, Jesus says these words, Father, hear it, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. I wonder if he's asking for forgiveness for us because of our ignorance. Is he saying, well, because they can't possibly know, that's why they're innocent of this? I don't think so, because he actually says we must be forgiven. Matter of fact, I want you to notice the intimacy here. I told you last week, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now this is Abba, this is Daddy, this is Dad, forgive them. He's in an intimate relationship with his Father in this moment, whenever he pleads for mercy for the people. The very people who put him on the cross, he draws into his relationship relationship with his father, and he says those words, Abba, Father, forgive them. Why? We can't know what we're doing. Why? Because the father must forgive. Why? Because we've put his very son on a cross. We've killed the very son of God. There's intimacy here, and there's a, a, a plea here where Jesus asks for forgiveness for us. Father, forgive them. But I want to take this from just this abstract theological concept of Jesus forgiving all of us on the cross, and I want us to explore a little bit about what forgiveness actually looks like. <laughs> because many of us think we know what forgiveness is, right? Uh, just this week, I had to ask forgiveness from someone, and the first thing I said was, I'm sorry, and they said, don't worry about it. But it felt so flippant, and I'm like, no, and I wasn't joking around. I really made a mistake, and I, like, I said, will you forgive me? And I waited, <laughs> and they said, thankfully, yes, I forgive you. Now get out of my face. That's what they said. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll take the win. I'm not because you have to, but because I'm asking you to, because I did do something wrong. I wonder, have you ever had a really hard time forgiving someone? I mean, have you really had someone truly harm you? in ways that you, let alone them, could not possibly understand. 
someone recently said that uh, as adults, we function out of all of our child heart, childhood hopes and hurts, you know, that we just live out of these places that we don't really think about them very much, but that we've been shaped in some powerful ways by what we've been through. And many times, we continue to live in these same experiences as if we're still children, not recognizing all that we've experienced, not identifying all the harms and the hurts that we have experienced or that we have caused. Have you ever had the experience of being deeply hurt. Many times to understand fully the depth of such harms takes years and years to fully understand, and even then you don't fully, but it shapes us in some way. And many times the people who harm us have moved on in life seemingly unaccountable for their sin. What do you do with your unimaginable hurts and your deep and hard pain? Well, that's what I think we can see here in Jesus Christ. Not these words as flippant, but these words as powerful because of what he says about his own experience on the cross. So I want to kind of unpack a little bit about what forgiveness looks like this morning, okay? And this is going to take a little different turn, perhaps, than you would expect, but we're going to talk about some ideas of forgiveness that we've gotten wrong. The first is this. I want you to know this morning that forgiving isn't forgetting. I've heard that said so many times, forgive and forget, forgive and forget. We're going to talk about that. But forgiveness is not forgetting the harms. Matter of fact, you have to remember the harms to even offer forgiveness. There's no possible way to offer forgiveness without it. If Jesus is hanging on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, but there's nothing to offer forgiveness for, then what's the harm? What's he forgiving us for? But clearly, clearly there was harm that needed to be forgiven, and not only that, forgiven by God the Father. You'll remember that in... um, the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples asked Jesus, uh, teach us to pray. And Jesus teach them what someone this week called the disciples' prayer. Some people call it the Lord's Prayer. And one part of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Not exactly. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven, past tense, our debtors. Jesus said, you should pray that way. God, I want you to forgive me the way I've forgiven those other people. If that's not hard enough, if you actually look at the Gospel of Luke, when the same prayer is mentioned, Jesus says, and pray like this, forgive us our sin as we have forgiven our debtors. Treat me with my eternal condemnation with you the way I've treated people who owe me a little bit. The word is not sin and sin. I've often prayed that way, forgive my sins as I forgive the sins of others, but that's not the word. It actually says the debt that they owe me, this kind of... um, equality thing that's a little out of balance. It's not quite the way it should be here on earth. But the sin, the hamartia, is a big problem. And in the Gospel of Luke, it's recorded, forgive our sins as we have, past sins forgiven, those in our debt. Where does this idea come from of asking forgiveness, of wanting to forgive other, needing to forgive other people, even in our prayer life? I want to share with you this morning uh, from Isaiah 43, 25. I think I have it up here. This is the word. It says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. That's Old Testament prophecy. God, speaking of himself, says, I, I, him, he, is the one who, first of all, blots out our transgressions. And it means that He blows them away. Why? For his own sake. And I actually thought that would read, for my name's sake. I'm like, I can get into that theology. But he says, no, for my sake. 
And then here's what he says, and I will remember your sins no more. Now you might say to me, well, Bill, that sounds like forgetting. It's not exactly, and we're gonna talk about that. But before we do, I wanna talk about God forgiving us for his own sake. For my own sake. I wonder when we go around, now some of us here this morning have, have maybe hanging on to some hurts and we're, we can't forgive. And I'm gonna try to be really practical about this. And it's not, I don't want it to be like, you have to forgive, it's the rule. Because you can't forgive that way, right? The word says you gotta forgive from your heart. But, but what are we losing when we're walking around in unforgiveness? What are we holding on to? And this scripture gives a little bit of a point to it. For my own sake, I'm blotting out your sins. For my own sake, I'm forgiving your transgressions. I think it is that if, if we are to continue to walk around, we can end up, hear me, nursing a wound that becomes the totality of all we are. We think about it. The word actually, to remember no more, means to bring to mind, to constantly bring up, to, to recall again, to mention, to recount, to talk about. It's a thing that we tell ourselves over and over again that defines us. And if we're not careful and we continue to, to, um, to tell the story and remember the story and think about the story and obsess about the story, all of a sudden we can find ourselves totally consumed in unforgiveness. I've heard it said this way. Unforgiveness, you may have heard this before, is like drinking poison and hoping the one that harmed you will die. It, it, it eats at us, the unforgiveness. I've already talked about how it's serious matter, so I'm not trying to be flippant about it, but it, it ends up defining who we are and it, and it manifests ultimately in, in who we'll ever become. Have you ever known an unforgiving person? Someone who just can't? You look them in the eye, will you forgive me? I won't, you know? You ever think about that, how much you would require of someone for you finally say, yes, I forgive you? Do they have to ask? Do they have to beg? Do they have to crawl? Do they have to fail? Do they have to die? I've seen many times where people have seen their, someone who harmed them put to death, and after that they said, it still hasn't brought healing. Why? Caring unforgiveness. Well, it's not just recorded in the, God, in the book of Isaiah that, that God will remember our sins no more, right? That means he's choosing not to bring them to mind. But in Hebrews, um, and you don't have to turn there because we're going to actually turn to um, the, the source text, but I'm going to turn there real quick. He, Hebrews 8, 7, this is the letter written to the church, and it says, um, for there has, let's see, 8, what did I say? Yeah, 8, 7, and 11. Oh yeah, for if there has nothing been wrong with the first covenant, that's the first promise of God, the law, right? Then no place would have been found for a second or another covenant. And then verse, um, let's see, 12. Because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And that's just a little excerpt, but I'm gonna ask you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And we're gonna read what the author of Hebrews quotes when he's justifying why there's a new promise that God made to do something that the old promise couldn't do, okay? And so he quotes the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31. And this is what the word says. The time is coming, declares Yahweh, that's the creator God, when I will make a new covenant, covenant simply means promise, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I won't get into the history here, but there's a split house and God is reconciling all his people to himself. 
It will not be like the first covenant or the first promise I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Although I was a, a faithful husband to them, declares the Lord. 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds. Here's the word. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God is promising, I want you to hear this, a time of intimacy with him where he will know us and we will know him fully known. And that's the promise there. Look at what it says. My law in their minds and written on their hearts, right? Look at this. I will be their God and they will be my people. Intimacy. Do you see that? 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I want to stop here and say something that might, I always think, well, what does that mean? No one's going to teach anyone. Don't we teach each other all the time about the word? I say yes and no, because ultimately it's God who is teaching us one to another. We learn together, right? Um, I think Paul says, I want to come to you so I can impart some spiritual knowledge to you that we might be mutually encouraged by our faith because we're all learning together. No longer will you teach a neighbor saying, know the Lord. Why? Because everyone will know me and hear the encouragement today from the least people to the greatest of people, from the smallest of people to the largest of people, that God is going to make himself known. That is to say, there's no reason you should be feeling inferior or superior to anyone else. Here's the, the final promise. Because I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Or the way it reads actually in the, the uh, Hebrew is, and I will not remember their sins. I will choose to not remember. I said to you earlier that forgiving isn't forgetting, but it, 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 it's related in a way that you choose to not remember. It doesn't end up defining us by what we've gone through. Why? Because we have forgiven. So you have this call from Jeremiah in the book of Hebrews, a new promise uh, that God will know us intimately and that he will forgive us and not remember our sins. But what does the forgiveness of God have to do with the forgiveness of others? That's the question then, right? Because all I've told you about so far is Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. And I've told you that Jesus, God says in the Old Testament, there's coming a time whenever I'm going to not remember their sins anymore. And that time is here. And I hope you understand that. That time is now. That time has been since Christ walked the earth, that his spirit has been poured out on his people, that all can know him from the least to the greatest. So what does it mean? How do we find forgiveness? Or how do we offer forgiveness to someone else? I told you the word in the Gospel of Matthew said, Father, forgive them, uh, or forgive my sins as I've, forgive my debts as I've forgiven my debtors. I want you to turn with me uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to read a story from it. 21. How does the forgiveness of Christ, the forgiveness of God, end up working into the forgiveness that we have available to give? 18, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And I don't know where Peter's at in his journey in life right now, except that he's learning from Jesus about what it means to be a forgiving person. And, and I, I can only imagine that he must have already had forgiven someone a few times because he's asking for the number. 
He's counting. <laughs> this is the fourth time, Bob. <laughs> how many times? Now, you know this passage probably, but here's how Jesus replies. I tell you the truth, not 70 times, but 77 times. And if you're Peter and you're on time six, you're like, oh, are you serious? I got to go 77 times? I got to forgive 77 times? I got worse news for you than that. In the Greek, it actually says 70 times seven. That's 490 times if you're doing math with me. That's a lot. That's the kind of forgiveness that you're so sick of giving forgiveness you can't even see straight anymore. How could I possibly forgive you again? How could I possibly offer this again? That's the kind of forgiveness that's so exacerbating, exacerbating that you can't imagine finding the depth of, of you know, consciousness to offer it. There's no way. Who can possibly forgive 490 times? Jesus answers that protestation that's in our hearts and minds like this, 23. Therefore, because of that, listen, because you are forgiving people, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with servants. And as he began the, statement, the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, that's over a million dollars, probably more than that with inflation, <laughs> was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, be, he and his wife and his children all be sold to repay the debt he owed. Get the imagery here. He goes, he owes, what's a lot of money? Probably more than a million these days, right? But some amount you're never going to repay. I want you to see that in the word. It says that he went, the servant went to him, and it says, um, since, in verse 25, since he was not able to pay. That wasn't that he didn't want to pay. It wasn't that he was being greedy. There's no possible way he could ever repay the debt. So much so that the master ordered that he be sold into slavery, his wife be sold into slavery, and all of his kids be sold into slavery. That's generational poverty over a debt. 26, the servant fell on his knees before his master be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And you know that master's got to be thinking, no, there ain't no way. There ain't no way you're going to pay me back. But look at what happens. The servant's master, 27, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Would you see those three things? The servant's master, seeing the slave that would never be able to repay the debt, took pity on him. We know the word in the family Bible, it's called splank. It means it made him sick to his stomach. You're in so much debt, you're in so far of your head, there's no way you're ever, ever getting out of it. The first thing he does is he's sick about it. But the second thing, I want you to see what it says, he canceled the debt. That could be interpreted as forgiving the debt. Many people right now are talking about debt forgiveness. I just need some debt forgiveness, right? I signed all this paperwork. I owe us money, but I need some debt forgiveness. Just find a way to get some debt forgiveness. Can you imagine if right now you owed, what would you owe? How much money do you owe people? You might be like, hey, I'm debt free. Well, praise God. Who, who do you owe for your life? Who's, who's served you in so many ways that you could never repay? For many of us, that's money. What if someone today wrote and just said, you're debtor, didn't write a check to pay for your debt, just said your debt is forgiven. That car, keep it. The house, paid off, right? College, student loans, <laughs> gone. 
Second thing, debt was canceled by the master's pity or grace. Then the third thing, check this out, and then let the servant go. See, it wasn't just that debt was forgiven, it's that you're free. I've been thinking deeply about forgiveness for a while, and I think that there's some layers of forgiveness here, and you can have the kind of forgiveness where you don't want people to owe anymore. It's fine, I don't want you to owe it, and you have to work through that process, and it's not an easy thing. You work through it with the Lord, and you say, I forgive you, I forgive you, and that's good. And then there's kind of forgiveness that says, uh, you don't owe me anything anymore, right? Just, we're evens. Where does that come from? There's a third step to forgiveness. And I want you to be free. I want you to be free in your life. Have you ever offered someone forgiveness like that? Well, many of us can't imagine it. Let's read on 28. But when that same servant, that very servant that was just forgiven and set free, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. That's like a few bucks, right? And he grabbed him, and he started to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell on his knees. Now, can you see it coming? Fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. He probably could. Look at this, 30. But the servant refused. Isn't that wild? That, that, that we have the ability to not forgive. That this servant who'd been forgiven so much will not forgive the fellow servant. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the entire debt. Well, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then their master called the servant in. The second, the first servant, right? He says, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to do so. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant like I had on you? In anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all the debt he owed. And I want to remind you that he could not pay that debt. This is how Jesus says, my heavenly father will treat each one of you, listen to the word, unless you forgive your brothers from your heart. This matter of forgiveness is no small thing. So how do you do that? We tell the story about the great debt and the minor debt and the, the wicked servant who won't forgive a brother, but what if it's us? What if we're the ones hanging on to that? How can we possibly, possibly forgive? I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but you don't have to because I think this, this will be the final part of this. 2 Corinthians 5. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he's tried a couple times to reconcile with them. There's problems there. There's sin there, you know, and they're calling him names. They're like kind of making fun of Paul by his back and all this. And I want you to see what Paul does. First of all, verse five, if anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you. He's saying it's a community that's grieving over this to some extent, not to put it too severely. Verse six, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. In other words, he knows he's screwed up already. Verse seven, now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he might not become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
Now, I'll say a couple things here. It does seem like it's a brother or a sister who's repentant of sin in some way, and they're reconciling. But listen to what he says in verse 8. Paul, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in all things. Verse 10. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive... I have forgiven, and here's the key, in the sight of Christ for your sake. In the sight of Christ for your sake. One final thought. In order that Satan might not outwit us because we are not unaware of his schemes. What is Paul saying? Paul it seems to me, and you can read it for yourself and talk to me later if you don't agree, Paul's saying that one of the devil's schemes is to keep us locked up in unforgiveness. And Paul doesn't even know the totality of what's been talked about with him. And you might think, well, Paul's in the church, and we're in the church, and everyone's great in the church. Not all the time, right? We're always harming and doing little things and big things, and these issues of forgiveness come up. And what do you do with it? And if it's small, what do you do if it's huge? And Paul says, I forgive everyone everything in the sight of Christ. Because of Jesus on the cross, I can forgive them. And in, in matter of fact, he even says, you forgive them and I'll forgive them. If you forgive them, I forgave them. Just let, let your words be my words. Because otherwise we might give Satan, uh, we might let Satan outwit us through his schemes. Paul's forgiveness is rooted in the cross of Christ and here's the key, the lack of forgiveness that's found in our lives is rooted in the devil's schemes. Schemes to what? Schemes against us. Schemes to keep us stuck. Schemes to keep us sick. The devil wants you and me to stay stuck in unforgiveness. But why, why, why don't we? Because Christ died that you and I might be free. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He said, the debt they pay, that they owe, they could never pay. And he was sick about it on the cross. He said, your debts are forgiven. And then he said, be free, my servants. So real practically, okay, Forgiveness is offered to you in Jesus Christ and to me. I hope you know that. If you've received the forgiveness of the cross and you know that you've been free of your debts and set free to live life in, in the freedom of Christ, praise God for that. But I want to know then, how do we forgive other people? Father, forgive them. Do you see that? Father, would you forgive them? Father, would you forgive the one who failed me? Would you forgive the one who harmed me? Would you forgive the one that's, that's got me stuck in this place in life? Would you, why? Because I can't do it. Father, you do it. Why is Jesus, doesn't say on the cross, I forgive them, they don't know what they're doing? He says, Father, you forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Because in this cosmic battle with sin, we need God's help. Oh, don't try to forgive people on your, by yourself. Ask the Father. Father, Forgive them. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, you know all the ways we've experienced harm and hurt in this life. And the last thing I have any intention to do today, God, is to, to 
minimize or lighten those things and, and obligate some perfunctory, some required forgiveness, Lord. They, like if we could just muster it. And you know we, we can't. Oh, but we need an intercessor that loves us so much to forgive us our sins that we might call on you to forgive others. Father, I want to pray that right now you would bring to mind those that we're holding grudges against, that we're, we're angry with, that we're, we're sick about. Lord, only you can bring reconciliation, only you can bring peace, only you can bring forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. Forgive them. Many people hurt us in this life and they don't even know how much. Father, would you forgive them? For our own hearts that are tempted to cling to unforgiveness, would you forgive us and teach us to forgive others? We love you so much. We thank you for your gospel that brings freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.